Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. In the first half of my conversation with Jonathan Breslau, we learned about the conditions that led to Radiological Associates of Sacramento becoming a dominant presence in the city of Sacramento and at Sutter Hospital for over 90 years. How an iconic leader like Arliss Pollock inspired a culture where clinical quality and service to referring physicians and patients were paramount in creating a powerhouse practice. A practice that served as a national exemplar, but that also led to an unhealthy sense of bravado and an unrealistic belief in the strength of RAS's market position. This second half of our conversation picks up with Jonathan and I discussing his difficult position as Chief of Staff for Sutter Hospital at a time when RAS was told that their 90 plus years of consistent contracts to provide radiology services at Sutter Medical Center would not be renewed. As you look at the relationship that a medical staff organization has to its hospital and the role of physicians in directing healthcare within that hospital, how do you reconcile Sutter's apparent power play with the principle that physicians are the primary directors of patient care and should therefore have a voice in determining who will be their imaging consultants? Well, it demonstrated that the medical staff had a much less powerful role than we thought we had. And I think if you look at the hospital administrator perspective on it, their job isn't to provide X doctors, it's to provide doctors. And their position is, yes, medical staff, you want quality, and that's what we're going to do. You don't get to pick if it's this, this person or that person or this group or that group. That's our job. If you think they're doing a bad job, we can hold them accountable. But I think that was the process. And the fact is, if we could have gone through our entire careers and not seen that kind of power play, we would have been just fine. (laughs) But it turned out we have a lot less control than we thought we had. And in this, I mean, by we, in this time, I mean we, the medical staff, not the radiology group. An important, though tough lesson to be learned, no doubt. Yeah. So... You described what sounds like a loss of about forty percent of the group's business. Well, let's let's be let's be clear. There was it was sort of phased in. The only thing that was immediate was ten percent, because they could turn off the hospital thing overnight, which is what happened. I mean, you know, we had uh, almost six months warning, but so the only thing that went away at one point was ten percent. The all the outpatient imaging that we did was still under a single contract that hadn't expired yet. So we had, and I don't remember precisely, but let's just say 18 months left or something. And they were adding capacity, but it's not even clear that they would have been able to replace us fully at the end of 18 months. Um, it just doesn't go that fast when you look at the size of our footprint. So we, the only thing that was a, was a quick thing was 10%, and then we had a lot of time to think about the rest of it. And so during that time... How did the partnership respond? Did everyone do their share in absorbing the losses or was it contentious? Uh, Yes. 
both. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, no, I think we had a, I, I think we had a, uh, the, the immediate thing that we did was like, okay, the, it's loss on the diagnostic side. So the diagnostic doctors are going to, I can't remember what it was, but we did a little bit of a furlough thing and everybody did a couple less days. It wasn't a big deal. At least half of the people were happy to do less days because they kind of wanted to anyway. And that was very quick. And then we also started some other ventures to try to make up for the revenue, both acutely and then what was the projected further revenue loss over time. And so what were some of those uh, ventures? One was the t- a teleradiology business. And we pretty quickly started doing work in Texas, Arizona. There was a Nevada thing lined up. And then we started reading all the imaging from urgent care centers in the area. And then we were looking for more stuff. That's one, a, an imaging core lab doing contract, you know, research for um, pharma. That sounds very entrepreneurial. Yeah. And the other thing that had happened, which is important to bring up, be, a few years before it, it had been growing and then we just grew it more, was our overall multi-specialty model. We were basically building our own multi-specialty medical group. And we had already brought in urologists, um, GYN oncology, medical oncology, vascular surgery. We were looking, we were bringing in specialties that were one way or another related to something in imaging, either because they were um, heavy users of radiation oncology, like people who treat prostate cancer, or vascular surgeons or connected to IR, and uh, overall oncology. So that was something that was already underway, and we just kind of were moving a little further on that as we approached 2010. And what were the group's goals in that expansion? And do you think that uh, that was ultimately a help or a hindrance? So the goals were, in effect, to move upstream up to the referral source to own some of the referral sources. So that would be protected. It was sort of a, uh, yeah, it was like protecting your flank, so to speak. and that so if prost- if radiation oncology was at risk, well, let's bring in the doctors to our group who refer to radiation oncology. So that was that was the the general strategy. Now, in the in the short and medium term, it was actually totally fine. But there were two things wrong with it. One is it really pissed off Sutter, <laughs> big time. The other thing is that. That kind of a strategy, really, the full-on strategy requires you to acquire a very large number of primary care doctors. That's what your that's your ultimate goal, uh, if you really think about it, because even a urologist needs someone to send them patients or a medical oncologist. And if all the people who are sending patients are sending them somewhere else, it doesn't matter that the oncologists are in your group. For that strategy to be successful, we we really needed to seriously consider how to acquire several hundred primary care doctors to start buying up primary care practices. And I think there was no way to do that without a very, very uh, serious strategic partner with Deep Pockets. Now, the, the, this is a, a lot of complex management, clearly, in the practice. Do, can you describe a little bit about uh, the relative role of physician leadership versus uh, uh, management a la, you know, folks that didn't have medical degrees in this process? Well, I think that the best thing is executives who are physicians but you don't have that many of them to choose from. You know, 
a Cleveland Clinic, a Mayo Clinic, um, Emory, they have that, but it's hard to find that really well. And I think that the executives, for the most part, aren't going to be physicians. And in a lot of ways, that's totally fine. And there's a lot of executives that aren't physicians that have a lot of good experience, whether they've been running imaging businesses. We had a great run with some executives in our growing our imaging business. Or they come from larger entities like over outside from health systems or from for-profit uh, health companies. And then also just executives with the right kind of background that might not have very specific experience. Do you think that during these, these difficult times, though, that, you know, you were getting the right support and that, you know, you seem to be aligned uh, or, you know, was there a, a little bit of a tug and a pull between the different constituencies? Right. So that's a good question. And I think that the most important thing at the very top is someone who values the relationships and can continue to nurture the relationships even through very tough and contentious times. So I would call it, you know, emo emotional intelligence, um, but with a real track record behind it. So that that really focuses the, the doctors on, we have to keep the health system happy. What do we do to keep them happy? We may have to make some compromises to keep them happy. Um, and how do we start to develop trust across the table? So in, in retrospect, could the relationship between RAS and Sutter have been saved? Yes, definitely. And I, I think that on the doctor's side, we would have needed somebody to really kind of paint the picture of where things are going in the future. And that there is a real possibility that Sutter might look, look to a divorce and, and find another, another partner. That, that That's something we need to take seriously. And that our goal is to make sure they never think about it, that it's just so much easier keeping us around and that there's compromises, things we'll have to not do that we would like to do just so they're just calm and keeping the peace between the two parties. I don't think we took seriously the idea that we were very small and they could just roll over and, and crush us. I think that coming to our partners and saying those things takes the right person. First of all, they had to be very brave. Because the first, first time it comes up, they'll probably be threatened with death or at least a very painful uh, outcome. But they have to be trusted and they have to come with really good facts and really good understanding of where things are going. But they're, they're, I think that that's a great sort of leadership challenge that would have resulted in a different outcome. I also would say the exact same thing on the opposite side. I think that at the Sutter executives at the time made some serious errors. And things had gotten personal, and I think people need to have needed to take a step back and say, if I can't if I can't handle this, I need to get someone. It's can. it's a great point. Uh, you know, you brought it up, and I wanted to follow up on the question of what did Sutter lose in ist in instigating this separation, and how long did it take them to figure out that they had really lost something important? One thing they lost was not needing to know much about imaging. They lost that. <laughs> Right. So it was like some bus drivers walking into the kitchen of a fancy French restaurant and holding all these recipes and like, uh oh, what are we going to do? The food was so good here, but I, we, we don't know how to cook. So that happened. And the continuity of care was really thrown off. The ability to get things done quickly was thrown off. But again, I, I keep going back to this. 
they didn't know what they didn't know, and that was a was a totally fine thing until they suddenly had to figure it out. And it, the the time frame there was uh, maybe two years when they started to say, "Let's see if we can try something else here." I will say this: they they were quickly able to find a lot of radiologists, some of whom are outstanding and are great members of our practice today, and some of them joined because they wanted specifically to be part of a multi-specialty medical group. They really liked the idea that they were working side by side with primary care, neurology, and what have you. That was very appealing to them. And in some ways, they get that better than we do. That's, yeah, that's a great message uh, uh, that, uh, you know, in the end, some of these folks that uh, came in to fill your spot have not only become your partners, but have helped to uh, educate the group as to the merits of uh, an alternative way of practicing. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was a good lesson for me. I mean, I really thought we knew everything there, there needed to be known and we were ignorant of a few things. So uh, approximately, as best as I can tell, a year after RAS's contract uh, with Sutter was terminated, there was a leadership transition in the partnership. Uh, what prompted that change in leadership at that time? We had three-year terms for president, and that was the three-year term was up. I see. And you became the new president and board chair of RAS. Uh, can you describe a little bit about uh, what that process was like? Well, the way it went is at first, there's kind of people sort of low-level, sort of a whisper campaign about who might be interested and what do they think, you know, and that kind of thing. And again, we were radiation oncology and diagnostic. And so there's sort of different interests there and, you know, who can sort of bridge, bridge the two parts. And I really felt that we needed to go directly to all the major, there's four big players in our medical, in the marketplace here, that we need to go to the top of all of them and try to develop relationships and really tell them what we value most of all is the relationships. And I was talking to the do our colleagues about that and that, that we really need to turn things around and quickly and that it, there really was an existential question and the status quo wasn't sustainable and standing still was the new failing. And they had elections for president and I, well, it's a lot, slightly more complicated than that, but they had elections and I was and it elected. It seems like so. it was a good thing. You know, entering into the separation, I think I read somewhere that the CEO of the group at the time publicly touted RAS's strategically developed and robust business model, suggesting that the majority of the business was in outpatient centers and that the loss of the contract would not hurt the group substantially. What did you and the group come to realize about the logic of that business model over time? That there was... I'm trying to remember precisely, but let's say three or four years, and then the bottom was going to fall out. Yeah. And so, so how would you characterize this period of time between the loss of the contract and the opening of the new negotiations with Sutter several years later? What's really interesting and not surprising is that a lot of people can, can read the writing on the wall. You know, the doctors owned the practice, and we weren't losing doctors. But we had almost a, an a, almost a thousand employees that we thought was our strength, and it it was. But the employees were were starting to lose good employees that were going to UC Davis or going to Sutter because they they could read the writing on the wall, 
And they are loyal to RAS, but they're more loyal to having stability in their family and, you know, being able to sleep at night. And so we were started to have some attrition of good employees going to similar jobs at Sutter because they felt, you know, my kids are, you know, three and five years old, but I'll be able to put them through college with, with uh, this job I'm taking. And I don't know what's going to happen at RAS. And there were some of these things that I described that were some additional projects that we were working up to make up revenue. But as you started to look, it was getting a little bit more and a little bit more uncertain as I really thought about it deeply. And that if we didn't get some new big connection with some of the larger players in our community, I didn't know. Again, I think it still takes a few years, but I didn't know what would happen in three to four years. Sorry, I did know what would happen in three to four years. <laughs> a lot less volume. And so what were the discussions like in the group? I mean, as you sort of saw this future potentially unfolding, you know, can, can you, are there any vignettes that you might recall that typified the mood at the time? Well, I don't want to paint it the wrong way. People were pretty okay at, for the time, you know, for a while there. People weren't panicking. The doctors weren't panicking at all. Our financial performance was very solid, and in some ways it made it more challenging to convince people to look at another path because some of the initially the response was like, "Why we're doing great? What's the problem?" you know and they didn't see the brick wall that was quickly headed toward us. Wait, the brick walls move anyway, I'm having some metaphorical challenges here, but the time frame a lot of people operated on was uh, very close to the present. There wasn't kind of projection over multiple years. Another thing that's a challenge that's a problem in most of these professional groups is the buy-sell agreements or whatever corporate documents they have that are govern the buying and selling and the ownership and so on are not designed to perform in a downturn. They're only designed for a permanent bull market. And there's sort of automatic buyout of people as they retire or as they leave at whatever the current valuation is. And there's no ability for the remaining partners to say, well, we can't afford that right now. Sorry, there's no, it doesn't exist. And so there was definitely an understanding that over time, if some doctors started to feel like it was time to go, the people left behind own all the debt and have to pay off these people at the full valuation. And that we probably would have had to do this without re completely rewriting our buy-sell agreements. There was definitely a, a foreseeable problem in the future. And I think that's fairly common in the way these groups are structured. Yeah, clearly ownership has its responsibility. And uh, it makes a lot of sense that in a declining environment, that uh, concern over how to manage those transitions. So when did the possibility of a re reconciliation with Sutter emerge and what steps were required uh, in order to two have years. that happen? Yeah, two years after the separation, one of the Sutter executives approached me and, and said, would you consider having your practice bought by Sutter? And that brought it back to the board and we signed non-disclosure agreements and talked about it. And at the time, we were saying, geez, we have no idea if this is going to work, but who wants to look at it? And everybody said, yeah, let's look at it. So what were the aspects of the negotiations for the group to sell to Sutter that stand out the most in your mind? I guess it's things that ended up resulting in the major documents that resulted in the consummation of the deal. And the two biggest 
for the employment agreement with the medical group and the asset purchase. There's a sort of forced lack of controversialness on the asset purchase because you're selling to a not-for-profit. So it's very regulated and you have to have a special kind of fair market valuation. And there isn't much negotiating ability. You can't just say, well, I want 10x. No, you have about 8x. You know, it's, it's a number that's set. It was, on the one hand, probably lower than a whatever the market would produce. But on the other hand, it, it wasn't, there wasn't a way to have sort of discord among the doctors in our practice about whether it should be higher or lower, or who was a better negotiator, who get the best price, because it was, it was pretty much set in a very narrow band. So you either said, okay, or I don't want to sell. So it, it, that, it was a lower number, but it made it um, simpler. The discussion was simpler. And the employment agreement is something obviously very important to the doctors. And that, that we couldn't start at the beginning for a number of reasons. Because at first, the medical group didn't know we were having the discussion. But once that got underway, it was pretty straightforward. Um, and we got a shortened term to ownership and... It was, as things go, relatively uncontroversial. So those were the things that were the issues is about that stuff, certain kind of loss of autonomy, the idea of the income being sort of capped a little bit more than it was, that you're selling, that all the employees and all the equipment goes to the medical foundation and we just work there now, we don't own any of it. On the other hand, it was a liquidity moment that probably where things were and where we were headed would never come up again as an option. So that kind of helped to make what otherwise was a difficult transition perhaps just a little bit more comfortable? Yeah. But again, I don't think everybody appreciated that what was listed as the value of their equity in the company was something that they could get their hands on easily. I don't think everyone appreciated that it would be hard without this deal to actually get that money. And once once you start looking at it, it's an unbelievably illiquid investment. <laughs> yeah. Now, you famously managed to keep the entire radiology practice intact through this entire transition. Um, was that a driving priority or a byproduct of the group's culture? Uh, both. People had a lot of loyalty. Um, they liked being part of the group. But I think also I tried very hard to have the communication as open and transparent as possible. When we had decision points at board meetings, on the board meeting before, I would try to get everybody the information and have the attorneys there, and they would already be able to see a document and then really pick over it for a month. And we'll say, okay, we're gonna look at it today. Um, Next month, we're gonna vote on it, things like that. And whatever anybody brought up, Sometimes it was very, very frustrating, but whatever people brought up, yes, we'll do that. Yes, we'll look at that. Yes, we'll ask that question because people were used to having 60 board members and the board members wanted to still be board members. And so I basically, you know, yes, what what do you want to know? Yeah, great. No problem. Even down to the very end where we had conference calls with an attorney in Los Angeles and the waning hours, you know, all kinds of stuff whatever was necessary to sit down and talk to people. Communication is clearly, you know, fundamental to the success of navigating virtually any leadership challenge. And when considering that you also had over 800 employees that were undergoing termination from RAS and then hiring by Sutter, how did RAS manage communications and avoid disruption amongst such a large workforce? 
Right. So at the very beginning and every month, probably, we stress to the doctors, the owners, the need for confidentiality. And we were much more careful about how documents were distributed and then recollected. And they were all numbered and we knew who had each copy and so on. And we didn't want people to take things out of the meetings. But there was a SharePoint site with password protection where they could review them if they wanted to, but it couldn't be printed and so on. And part of the negotiation was that our one of our deal points was Sutter had to take everybody. And our employees, basically, what happened to them was they changed their name tags from RES name tags to Sutter name tags, and their paycheck was written differently. And I think in some cases, if not a lot of cases, it was higher. But they didn't have to like interview for jobs. They, you know, they weren't fired, and then I, I hope I get a job. But they, it was basically a very smooth transition for the vast majority of our employees, like uh, like ninety five percent of our employees. And with other people, we made a lot of effort to try to match them up with HR and job openings very quickly to be able to make yeah, a transition. I mean, when you consider all the moving parts, it was really done very impressively. Can you describe? Any particular sort of highest highs and lowest lows that you might have experienced during all of this? I mean, I know you're a pretty even guy. You know, that's probably a a key element of your success, honestly, in this. So as high and as low as you go. (laughs) I think the very beginning was um, very exciting to me and scary at the same time. But I, I very quickly felt that this was a lifeline because... There are a lot of different paths. We talked to venture capital, we talked to private equity, we talked to publicly traded companies. And the only path that was fundamentally focused on continuing to provide healthcare in Sacramento for the rest of our careers was going with Sutter. All the others had uncertainty in five years. It could go public, you get sold out, bought, et cetera, et cetera, closed down, you know. And this was the only thing that allowed us to kind of make our own career decisions about if we wanted to stay in the area and continue to practice medicine the way we liked. So the, the, the initial thing was very exciting to me. And then at the very end, when we realized we were going to get everybody to come across the line, it was very exciting. I think there were low points along the way where things started to leak out and individuals decided, we had individuals that would decide to go talk to this person or that person. and we started to wonder if it was ever going to be possible because it was just too much entropy in the system. And there were some things in the middle where I started to get mildly despondent <laughs> uh, that it was just too hard. And, you know, I thought the odds were against it from the beginning. Actually, the lowest part was just, you know, being in the hospital and, and planning for my funeral. That was, that was the lowest. <laughs> help, you know, help, helping them make sure that the replacement group was going to be able to take care of business. You know that was that was really hard. Uh, I realized I made a decision that that was my my job, and I didn't question it. But it was not easy. Sounds like that was in particular a very stressful time. And I lost my cool a couple times, but <laughs> only at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. What sorts of things did you do at that time to try to preserve some balance in your life? That's I, I, one word: running. I would leave the medical executive committee meetings and go out for a six mile run and practically scream the whole time. And then I felt Marvelous. great. It's great. It's great that you had that release. I highly recommend Bravo, that. As long as the knees hold out. So 
Looking back over the past four years now under a completely new structure, how long did it take and what steps were involved for the group to reach a sense of equilibrium? I I think that there's been a couple sort of phases, a couple equilibria, punctuated equilibrium. Isn't that an evolutionary term? There's been a couple spots because you know, people are individually going through various thought processes. Because I, I, I think right now, four years out, you know, we part of our deal was we had a four-year non-compete, and that's gone. That uh, ended in February of this year. And uh, nobody left as a result of the non-compete going away. But I think some of the people that were originally with RAS are still sort of mourning the lack of control and, and ability to make quick decisions and act on them. And I think that's bugging people a lot right now. And so maybe a year ago that was quieter. So that might have been an equilibrium. I think that there's a lot of, of blending now in terms of the leadership of the group and the day-to-day work of, of both the original RAS people and the original Sutter Medical Group radiologists. Um, like I said, we're getting great contributions from both sides. And that, I think that that part of it is very smooth. I definitely think that people are still feeling like the communication isn't what it needs to be. And including me are still sorting out who's in charge of what there's sort of a, you know, I'm, I'm the chairman of the department, but then there's a, a, a doctor above me that's over all the specialists. Then there's a chief medical officer and then there's a medical group president. And then there's the whole health system. And it's still, I'm still puzzled from day to day about whom I'm supposed to talk to about what. The other thing is just that everything's much, much slower in terms of execution. And that's challenging. The stability, I mean, we went overnight from worrying about where we were going to get patients to worrying about how we were going to get all the work done. And no one is worried about finding work from the first day we became part of the medical group to today. And volume's still been growing. Our recruitment's gotten really good. Pretty much anybody we put out a job offer to accepts. And I'm just blown away about the caliber of people we're hiring. I think we're the job to get in SAC metro area and broader even. Anybody that wants to be near the Bay Area. So I'm really, uh, I, I think in terms of general stability, we're very much in equilibrium now. I, again, I think there's some things below the surface that are really bothering people that are harder to tackle, but we're working on that as much as we can. Earlier, you described you know, what manifests as a very entrepreneurial spirit within the group. Are there uh, outlets for that entrepreneurial spirit today? Not adequate. Do you see a pathway? Yes, but it's very different. It's kind of like, first of all, if you got 10 things, you got to pick one and then there's a lot of people that you have to deal with and talk to. And I'm paired with an executive that's over the imaging service line who his previous job was uh, chief operating officer for a national publicly traded imaging company. And without him, I would, I think I would don't think, I don't think I would get anything done except agreeing to hire people or something. And he and I sit down and work through, okay, so you're going to call so-and-so and I'm going to call them. And then we're going to have a meeting. And we're both used to things going much faster. So what's what for me personally, the entrepreneurial zeal is replaced by slicing through the bureaucracy zeal to get things done. Uh, so 
it's different. <laughs> There's definitely rewards in that. Yeah, and so I'm I I actually and I am very I very much enjoy trying to navigate the maze. I like figuring out who to talk to in this one and that one and somebody somebody says no and I talk to their boss and say they said no no we can do that you know things like that I I enjoy that but it's it's a very different I think there's something still entrepreneurial about it but it's very different yeah so so what would you say are some of the greatest benefits of being integrated as employees of a multi-specialty medical group within Sutter Health yeah so the biggest of all and it's not it's not something that's in front of your face, but the biggest of all is safety and security, first of all. But then I feel like I understand what primary care doctors are doing and what their challenges are much better than I ever did in independent practice. And same with specialists. I feel like I'm much more uh, a direct, and all of us are much more a direct part of all the different healthcare and um I, I think that that's very important, not just to, it's not just sort of an intellectual stimulation sort of thing, but I think for radiology, um, we have functioned, you know, for a long time effectively by just being in an office and receiving things and sending out information and not necessarily needing to understand much about what the person who sent us the thing, what they really need. It varies from place to place, but it hasn't been an essential thing. And I think where healthcare is going with much more integration, perhaps, you know, uh, much more value and much less pay for volume is that radiology has to be integrated into the, all the parts of healthcare and the radiologist needs to know what the doctor in the office sitting across the table from the patient, what they're thinking, what their challenges are, and then what the chief medical officer is looking at in terms of big size population management questions. And imaging needs to serve both that macro and both and micro in a way that we didn't have to before. It was nice if we did, but I think going forward, it's more of an existential question. And so being in the multi-specialty medical group, I feel like we're much more positioned to understand what it is they need from Has us. Has your approach to leading within the group changed as a result of the transition to uh, the role that you have currently in the medical group and in the health system versus when you were a private practice? Yeah, I think that there's much more repetitive explanation of things like how we get paid, what the chances are for differences in our salary, what is happening in healthcare on a consistent basis to to help people understand where things are going. And it, it seems like it's much more kind of repetitive communication of the landscape, describing the landscape and making sure pe- that people understand that they that I'm accessible and I have information for them. It's a challenge to make sure I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying I'm fully successful at this, by the way, it's a challenge to make sure I'm always kind of visible. So, because one of the things that happened, and this is, I think, uh, a certain bit of naivete on my part. One of the things that happened was, okay, we have a big department. I'm not going to just do everything myself. I'm going to have section heads and we're going to have leadership team meetings and the section heads are going to communicate. Well, the individual doctors didn't really feel the love and the section heads were committed to doing this in varying degrees. And the result was that I thought it was effective and it wasn't very effective. And people thought they weren't being told about decisions. They weren't being told how decisions were made and they weren't being told about what decisions were coming up. 
So we've had to, I had kind of a, a big town hall meeting with all the radiologists and we've talked a lot about all these things. And so we've had to make some changes and just the fact that I thought there was a good structure to put in place didn't mean it would actually function properly. <laughs> so I, I, I learned Absolutely. that. Absolutely. You know, listening, adaptability, all traits of a strong leader. And, uh, you know, it's great to hear how, you know, you've manifest those. You know, we talked about your approach to leading within the group. How about your approach to leading on behalf of the group in this larger health system? Has there been some evolution or lessons learned in that domain? Uh, yes, a lot of it is starting out by listening and what are what are their challenges um, and trying to kind of prompt that by saying, here's some kinds of things I think that we need to be doing, but you know what 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 do you guys need? where Where are things going? What are the challenges that you have? I'm also leading a diagnostic imaging standards committee that's across the entire health system. So I meet with the chairs of the big hospital, Sutter Hospitals in Palo Alto. And in, I mean, sorry, that's a medical group, the big hospital in San Francisco and the East Bay, Modesto and Sacramento. And we work on some things that are standarding imaging across, you know, it's a, a health system with about 3 million exams a year. And that's very interesting. And there's a lot of politics there because each site believes that they know things best. And especially San Francisco and Palo Alto, they think in, in Sacramento, we're a bunch of yahoos and, you know, just fell, fell off the uh, radiology truck or whatever it is. Um, and so there's a lot of putting topics up and seeing how people, what people say and helping guide a decision-making process that not just people think they might have ownership of, but they really do have ownership of. And for me, my uh, gratification isn't that I had the idea. My gratification is that I guided a process that people agreed upon. And that's not always easy. You like to kind of jump in and say, well, here's what I would do. Here's what I suggest. I like this. You know, and you have to say, we need to, let's start talking about this general topic. What are you guys, what are you guys doing? What do you, how do you think we should do it? And have individual people work on chairing up individual subcommittees, things like that. Sounds sounds collaborative. You need to be. Is there anything that, in retrospect, you wish that you had done differently? There's a couple of things. One is what I referred to first, which is just how to set up the sec the the structure of my department to kind of spend more time asking people for their opinions and making sure that that was very visible and not having a focus on specific outcomes. You know, as as long as as long as I got this general idea accomplished, not really feeling like it was important for me to come up with what it, what the specifics were, that other people should be doing that. More collaborative process of just deciding the leadership structure. I, I think that's, and then also I think just being a more, more consistent communicating, although I do a lot, one of the things that I'm constantly fooled by is I constantly think that sending an email to a lot of people works and it never works. <laughs> um, it might be a way to bring up a topic, but you have to, it's just a start. And a month later, two thirds of the people will insist that you never told them. So I constantly forget that rule, but the rule email by itself doesn't work. You have to do other that things. That is a great lesson, not only to learn, but to impart to our le listeners. W one last question, and that is, is looking ahead now, what excites you the most? 
Um, some of it is what I was talking about, about the role of radiology in how health systems have to provide care and organize care. And I, I believe very much that radiology is at a crossroads where we can be passive and kind of move down the food chain, or we can really be active at trying to support and individual care decisions and population level care decisions. It requires a seamless partnership with IT, IS, what you want, whatever you want to call it, more than most other parts of healthcare, because we need we need the uh, the data science. There's a plug for ACR. We need the data science to support decision making. But I think that that's something that should be integral part of what is considered radiology service over time. And I think it's that's very exciting. I think it makes the job much more fun. I also want to bring patients into the department more in terms of talking to them and having patient consults on imaging. And I think that makes the job more fun. Fantastic. Well, Jonathan Breslau, you have had an amazing journey and I can't thank you enough for sharing it with us with such candor and openness. Thank you very much for joining us on Taking the Lead. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's a real pleasure talking to you and good luck with the whole series. Please join me next month when I speak with Jonathan Lewin, Executive Vice President for Health Affairs for Emory University, Executive Director of the Woodruff Health Sciences Center, and President, CEO, and Chairman of the Board of Emory Healthcare, the largest healthcare system in the state of Georgia. Prior to Emory, while serving as Chair of Radiology at Johns Hopkins University, John co-chaired a strategic planning initiative for Johns Hopkins Medicine which led to a formal role outside of radiology as Senior Vice President for Integrated Healthcare Delivery for Johns Hopkins Medicine. We'll explore the evolution of his leadership approach and strategies as he has transitioned from heading one of the nation's top radiology departments to one of its top health systems, and how his perspective as a radiologist shapes his priorities and tactics for Emory Healthcare. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pascoe, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Brian Russell for technical support, Megan Giampapa for our marketing, Peg Helminski for production support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin from Duke University. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or the RLI at R-L-I underscore A-C-R. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.